Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Kyle Hubbard. For more about this podcast and other resources, visit our website at www.riverinthehills.com. You guys can go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. As you're turning, I want us to look at a short video describing a great man of God's near-death experience on August 8th of 1975. During this experience, this amazing prophet of old named Bob Jones, he's since gone to be with the Lord in 2014, but in 1975, he stood before the Lord in heaven. And the biggest thing I want us to grab from this video is the question that God asked him and everyone that it was in the line that he was in about his life. Let's look at this video now. The Lord had given me some prophecies. And I began to bring them, and I was told by an evil spirit, if I kept bringing them, that he'd take my life. I didn't believe him, but he did. So I went to the Lord in death. And as I come close to the Lord, I saw that all the people that was in our line, he asked them only one word, did you learn to love? I saw that about 2% of all humanity was in the line I was in. There were 98% that was in another line that was wrapped up in their gods because we're going to spend eternity with our gods. And if it's Jesus Christ is our God, we'll spend eternity with him. So as I stood before him, and I was getting ready to tell him, yes, Lord, because he only asked you, did you learn to love? And I was going to tell him I had, but he said, I want you to go back. And I told him I didn't really want to. <laughs> but he said, go back, because I'm going to bring a billion souls into myself in one great wave. And I want you to touch a few of the leaders that I'm going to use uh, in that time. Wow. Did you learn to love? This is the most important question that we can all ask ourselves in each season, and I believe each day. Am I growing in love? Am I learning to love? This morning, we're going to look at the clearest and most comprehensive biblical description of love that God is after in each one of us. Thankfully, the Bible is abundantly clear on what love actually is in God's eyes. How does God define love? Biblical definitions are under extreme attack in our culture today. And I can think of no greater attack on any one subject, any one definition, than the biblical subject and definition of love. The enemy has so perverted and twisted God's definition of love that there is even a whole movement whose slogan is love wins, the homosexual movement. Their corrupted definition of love has permeated the cultural narrative of our day. Make no mistake about it, though, love will win in the end, but only the biblical definition of it. So for the remainder of the message, we are going to let this most comprehensive biblical passage on love, 1 Corinthians 13, speak for itself. It's interesting to know that this famous chapter on love is sandwiched between two chapters that are all about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's think about this in terms of food because we all love food. 
This chapter 13 love is actually the meat in the sandwich of the gifts of chapter 12 and 14. Chapter 13 is the real substance that counts forever. And really the only thing that God is after ultimately and eternally in our hearts. There's going to be no gifts, there's going to be no need for gifts in heaven. But love's going to carry over. The gifts of chapter 12 and 14 are vitally important and we should all go after them. But we must realize that these gifts are merely the temporary helpers to bring about the most effective witness to the gospel of Jesus. In the last verse of chapter 12, Paul says this in verse 31. He says, earnestly desire the best or the greater gifts. Go after the gifts of the Spirit. And yet, yet, I show you a more excellent way. The more excellent way than the way of the gifts themselves is the most excellent way of love. This way of love, specifically this perfect agape love of God, this is the word used throughout 1 Corinthians 13, agape, the highest form of love. This is the channel through which all the gifts must flow in order for them to count forever. To have real eternal impact, they must flow through this channel of love. If any of the nine gifts of the Spirit travel through a path other than the pure love of God, they will be subject to corruption, even to demonic influence. Look at fortune tellers. They've been given a gift by God that the demonic has twisted because it's not based on the gospel of the love of Jesus. And ultimately, like with the case of fortune tellers, unless they repent, it could ultimately lead that person operating that gift to destruction. This reality, though, shouldn't cause us to shy away from the gifts for fear of misusing them. Many sections of the church have done just this. They've operated out of fear and actually ran away from the gifts. But in the Bible, right here in verse 31, we are told to do the opposite. We are told to earnestly desire and eagerly run after every good gift that God has provided for us through his spirit. We should want all of them and should desire to grow in our effective use of them but we must never lose sight of this most excellent path that God has called them to travel on, the path of the love of God. And take confidence. I believe that if we are sincere in our pursuit of love, if we keep the first commandment in first place, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that I believe the Lord will be faithful to keep us on this path of love. The leadership of Jesus is more powerful than the deception of the devil. The leadership of Jesus is more powerful than the deception of the devil. We're going to look at the first three verses here, 1 Corinthians 13, which in a very provocative way elevate the way of love over the gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, we'll start in verse 1. Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. We could have the greatest oratory gift in the world. We could move masses with poetic language and impassioned cries. We could even learn a supernatural language of heaven, the tongues of angels. We could have the voice of Adele or, or Freddie Mercury or the speech-delivering ability of Winston Churchill. But if the love of God wasn't our pure motive as we spoke, then to the Lord's ears, we would become like a harsh-sounding brass. 
in a dissonant clanging cymbal. It's important to note that this is from the Lord's perspective, primarily, because only he and he alone has the ability to fully judge a person's heart. Only he can peer into the inner life when it comes to this issue of love. The biggest secular example of this verse is actually Adolf Hitler. He was an incredibly gifted orator and a speech giver. He moved an entire nation through his speeches to buy into his demonic agenda and commit genocide against the Jews. Obviously, his motive wasn't the pure love of God. He misused the gift that God gave him of public speaking. Travis Scott, a modern-day rap artist, he no doubt has catchy lyrics and cool-sounding beats, but these are clearly outside of the pure love of God. And his music is seducing and hypnotizing young people to the jaws of hell. The truth of verse 1 here is even real, though, inside the church. It's not just Hitler or Travis Scott. We can share, I can get up here and share airtight biblical doctrine and speak the plain and simple truth of the scripture. But if I didn't have agape love flowing out of me for you guys, well, I would become something ultimately detestable and displeasing to God. We can have the spiritual gift of tongues. We're a spirit-filled church. We could be able even to interpret the heavenly messages through tongues to encourage the church. But again, if I don't sincerely love God while I'm doing it and love the people through the gift, I will become unsavory to my Savior. I won't be pleasing to him. Who cares if we can speak in heavenly tongues if we aren't kind in English? Note the word become at the end of verse one. This brings up the truth that this lack of love is an identity issue. The people who are devoid of love in their speech become a clanging cymbal or a sounding brass. We'll see this idea of, a, of love being an identity issue in verse two further. So let's go there now, verse two. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. We could be the most accurate and astounding prophetic voices of our generation. I could tell you your phone number, your address, the secret prayer that you prayed this morning to God. I could tell you all these things, and fortune tellers do that pretty well. We could know everything in every textbook. We could even know all the hidden mysteries of the unseen universe that still stumps, stump scientists. Basically what this verse is saying, we could be omniscient. We can know everything like God knows. But if we didn't utilize this knowledge and understanding and the prophetic insight we were getting to genuinely love God and love people, but instead used it for selfish gain or to puff ourselves up, we would become nothing in the eyes of God. Again, the perspective here is from God's eyes, his evaluation of the human heart. Because trust me, if you have an astounding gift of prophecy, people are going to flock to you even if your motives aren't pure. Or if you have an amazing voice like Freddie Mercury, people are gonna flock to you, even if your motive isn't the pure love of God. You will be somebody in the world's eyes if you know everything, if you have all the letters behind your name. You're gonna be somebody to the culture, but to God, you will become as nothing. It's astounding how backwards the culture is from the true kingdom dynamics of God. Without love, we are nothing. We see that here at the end of verse two. 
our, catch this, our eternal identity is wrapped up in how we love. This is why God asked those people in heaven, did you learn to love? Why is love the core identity or the core currency of heaven? Why is it an identity issue? Because of 1 John 4.8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's eternal identity is wrapped up in love. So if we are devoid of love, we are devoid of God. We are devoid of meaning. We have become nothing. It makes perfect sense. It's perfect logic. Love is God's identity, and it should be ours too. That's the goal of the Christian life, to become love. Love is more than a feeling. It's more than a choice. It's more even than an action. It's our core identity. Now, the second part of this verse addresses what most believers believe to be the most important aspect of the Christian faith. Faith. Faith itself. And don't get me wrong, our faith is valuable. It's more precious than gold. Our faith is necessary. In fact, we cannot even please God without faith. But our faith is not paramount to love. Our faith must work through love to be pleasing to God. It's interesting to note that the faith right here in verse 2 is the highest quality of faith. It's actually the very faith of God that's required to do the impossible, to remove a physical mountain. God bestows upon his children for certain times, for certain moments, the very faith that he possesses to do the miraculous, the supernatural. This is the realm of the faith of God, which is this verse is talking about. But, but again, just like if you possessed omniscience, the infinite knowledge of God, here if you p- possess the infinite faith of God, but it wasn't from the pure motive of love, your life would devolve and crumble into nothingness. This is challenging, guys. This should challenge us. This should startle us. I love the word of God. It startles us. Paul may have been inspired by Jesus' words in Matthew 7 when he wrote this. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to Jesus in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? But Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus was basically saying that these people never became intimate with him. They never truly knew the God of selfless love. And therefore, they used the gifts that he gave them in a self-serving way. This was evidenced by their unholy, lawless, and loveless lives. These people didn't let the love of God truly into their hearts and lives and so they never were transformed into love themselves. And so the, in the end, their lives counted for nothing, and they became nothing. They had an amazing ministry pedigree. It's right there in the verse. But God vomited out, hit them out of his mouth in the end because they didn't sincerely love people with their gifts. This is wild, guys, but it's true. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, And though I give my body to be burned, that was the most startling to me, but have not love, it profits me nothing. We could empty our bank accounts over and over again for good causes, but if we don't actually follow Jesus in the pure path of God's love, it doesn't profit us or benefit us in the end. One eternal penny won't be accounted to our eternal account if we don't do it from the pure motive of love. We see this with many wealthy philanthropists 
and these false justice movements where people and nonprofit organizations are simply meeting people's temporal, physical needs without actually calling those people to repentance and to a life of following Jesus. The only true eternal, catch this, the only true eternal justice and benefit that we can give to people is the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is the only meal that can satisfy people for eternity. It's the only water that can satisfy their eternal thirst. The gospel is the only clothing that can cover them forever. All other good works done outside of the gospel of Jesus are mere band-aids, temporary. But don't hear this and think that God doesn't want us to feed the poor. God clearly loves it when we care for those who are down and out. He loves the lives of radical generosity. He's very clear on that all throughout scripture. He just wants it to be done in the eternal way of love. He wants these acts to lead the recipients of these charities into a life of following Jesus. We can't divorce charity from the gospel if we want to truly if we want it to truly benefit us and the recipients. Paul says, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it counts, it profits me nothing. We could even be willing martyrs for a cause. We could lose our one and only single precious life for something. But if that cause isn't to magnify the love of Jesus, it will be all for naught. It will count for nothing. So many people throughout history have willingly laid down their lives for causes that Jesus never endorsed. I believe the definition of a true martyr, martyr is very narrow in God's eyes. We see this most clearly in instances of radical Islam. People blow themselves up and cause mass casualties in the name of Allah. Clearly these ones are not being motivated by the pure love of God. When we view this verse through that real life experience, it comes into focus a little bit more. So if you're willing to give up your life for something, make sure it's the cause of selflessly magnifying the gospel of Jesus. So for the last portion of this message, guys, we're going to receive insight on what this most excellent way of love actually looks like in practicality in verses four through eight. So that we may all grow in love daily. My prayer to God, sincere prayer for everyone in this room, everyone who calls this church home, is that all of us would obtain an excellent testimony at the end of our lives when we stand before our glorious God and Father. My greatest joy would be to hear God declare over Jessica Schweders, this one learned to love. <laughs> over Paul Norris, this one loved me. This one loved my sheep, Amy. This one loved his enemies. I want to hear that. So that's why I'm giving you guys this message. Verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. We're going to break this down phrase by phrase. Love suffers long. Love endures the waiting. Love suffers on behalf of the recipient of that love. Love is patient. Love doesn't run away when things get hard. <laughs> I can just think about people in my life who didn't run away when things got hard for me. I love this verse about God's patience with us. This is a supreme example of love suffers long. Second Peter 3, 9. 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Right here, it's his promise to actually return to the earth. As some count slackness. But he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This verse is saying that the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because of his love expressed in his long-suffering towards sinners. There's still multitudes who Jesus wants to be saved who have yet to come to him. And so he's being extremely patient in heaven until they do. He wants to come back, but there's still so many that have yet to say yes. We should all be long-suffering with sinners just like Jesus is. Love is kind. Love maintains a kind, gentle, and tender heart even in the midst of suffering. Without the Holy Spirit's help, just the opposite happens to most people. Suffering usually hardens people and causes them to be calloused, harsh, grumpy, and jaded. But when we have the pure love of Jesus coursing through our veins, we can be kind and gentle in the midst of long periods of real suffering. I also like to think of kindness as closely related to mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment in a heart that is connected to the God of love. A person operating in agape love, and specifically this kindness aspect, they live a life of choosing mercy as long as possible. There is a time for discipline and judgment, but those decisions are the last resort for the person of love after extreme amounts of mercy and kindness have been shown. Love is kind. Love chooses mercy over judgment as long as possible. Love does not envy. I love this one. To envy is to want what someone else has. To want a possession, a person, a position, a place of honor, etc. Love goes in the exact opposite spirit of envy. What's the exact opposite spirit of envy? It's celebration. It's celebrating when someone else gets the promotion. It genuinely, love genuinely celebrates when someone gets the nicer car than you that you wanted or receives an honor that you really desired. Love genuinely celebrates the goodness and kindness of God in another person's life. Love sees another person's victory as its own. This is key. Love rejoices with those who rejoice. It knows that if we're in the household of faith together, your win is my win, Starla. There is no room for envy in the family of God. My brother's victory is my victory. It really is. Breakthrough, healing, anything that we desire, if our brother gets it, it goes on God's scoreboard. That's our team. It's a team win. So we can't be envious. Love does not envy, it celebrates. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up or arrogant. Love's reward is not in public recognition or the praise of man. Love's reward is found solely in the object that they are loving, not in anyone else's opinion on that love. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 1, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Think about it this way. Love makes eye contact with the person they are loving and doesn't care who is watching. Someone who is full of the love of God loves people with the same quality, the same intensity in private when no one is watching as they do in public when all eyes might be watching. Love is consistent. This is what this verse is saying. Love is consistent and isn't moved by accolades that might accompany it. Verse five, 
love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. We'll take these two descriptions together. Love does not behave rudely and love is not provoked. We'll come back to love does not seek its own in a second. Love does not behave rudely and love is not provoked. Again, we have the idea here of love being extremely gentle and laced with kindness. There's no rude backbiting in love. In fact, there's the opposite. There's back praying in love. (laughs) What if we kindly and genuinely prayed for people behind their backs instead of rudely criticizing their decisions? What if someone's wrongdoing towards us provoked us to prayer instead of provoked us to anger and gossip? This is what love does. This is who love is. I love this analogy. Love has a long fuse. I feel like the Lord just said that over you, Larry. You have a long fuse. Love is not easily irritated. People can prod and try to push your buttons all day. But when we are strong in love, we can keep our cool for a supernatural amount of time. Love is a punching bag that receives blows and doesn't punch back. There is an extreme display of the fruit of the spirit of self-control manifested in love. For my Gen Zers in the room, love is not easily triggered. Okay, they'll get that. Love does not seek its own. So key, Philippians 2. Just read Philippians 2 for love does not seek its own. Let nothing be done in selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, it's a mindset. Love is a mindset. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Love uses any position of leadership or authority as a vehicle to go low, instead of using it as a ticket to go high and be lofty and dominate people. Love takes up the servant's towel, even when you might be the most important person in that room. Love takes the lowest seat. Love esteems self-sacrificial service as the pinnacle of all activity on earth. I'll say that again. Love esteems self-sacrificial service as the pinnacle of all activity on earth. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Love's heart posture voluntarily takes the lowest seat in every room with joy, knowing that in God's eyes, the lowest seat is actually the highest seat. Love thinks no evil. The devil is the father of lies and the father of evil. And the place he tries to attack us the most is in our minds, in our thoughts. The battlefield is the mind, and the devil works to plant thoughts of doubt, fear, lies, and generally thoughts of evil towards ourselves, towards others, and towards God. But love chooses to gird up the loins of their mind and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Love violently wars against evil thoughts and casts them away as not from God. Love pleads the blood of Jesus over their own mind and over the minds of their loved ones and daily receives the blessing of possessing the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. There's no room in the anointed mind for evil thoughts. Evil thoughts are like birds. 
that try and come and make a nest and eventually build a home, a stronghold in our minds. The person full of love stays vigilant and bridles their thoughts to think the way God thinks. Love chooses time in the word of God to renew that mind and fill the mind with the good thoughts of God. Having an evil thought about God, ourselves, or others is not sin in itself, just like temptation is not a sin in itself. But if we dwell on and accept those evil thoughts as reality, that's when it can cross over into sin. Hear me on this one. We can't afford to agree with any thought that God is not thinking about us. We can't afford to agree with any thought that God isn't thinking about us. Love thinks no evil. Love fights to only think the good thoughts of God. Love believes the best. Verse six, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. I love this one. Love takes genuine pleasure in righteousness and holiness, but when iniquity is present, love is grieved and saddened. Sin and rebellion saddens a person full of love. Look at this amazing verse that has an end time context in Ezekiel 9 verse 4. The Lord said to this angelic being, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done in the midst of them. God actually wants to mark people, not with the mark of the beast, but with his original mark, the mark of the cross. He wants to mark people for protection in the midst of the end time judgments. This is really good news for us. And the way that God recognizes and marks the righteous in the end times is if they sigh and cry over sin. This is staggering. If you get grieved when you see sin in the culture, you're in a good place. Are you sighing and crying over the evil in our country right now? If so, God is marking you for protection. So keep sighing, keep crying over the evil. This is a rhetorical application question. How can believers laugh and enjoy movies and music that are full of sin and iniquity and perversity? God surely isn't laughing or enjoying them. Love doesn't enjoy iniquity at all. It sighs and cries over it. Love rejoices in the truth. Last half of this verse. The truth is our friend and our compass. The truth is a person. It's Jesus. If we rejoice in Jesus, we rejoice in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth even when the truth costs that person. Even when the truth hurts that person's cause, love chooses to rejoice in the truth. You might find this on your taxes. There's a little thing that, that you get less money back, but you gotta rejoice in the truth no matter what. The Bible is truth. Love rejoices in the word of God and its supremacy in every situation. I think Psalm 45, seven encapsulates the description of love here in verse six perfectly. Psalm 45 is a prophetic picture of Jesus, by the way. Psalm 45, seven. You, Jesus, love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The ticket to true joy. That's what we're all after, the pursuit of happiness in America. What's the pursuit of happiness gonna find its fulfillment in? When you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. You will be consistently the happiest person in the room if you obey verse seven of Psalm 45 here and verse six of 1 Corinthians 13. If you love righteousness and vehemently hate iniquity and lawlessness, the oil of gladness will shine on you. This happens to Mari. 
The oil of gladness shines on her because she obeys this verse. Verse seven, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love bears all things. Love is strong. Love suffers long under the burdens of this life. Love has a strong foundation. It doesn't crumble under the weight of responsibility or the weight of carrying burdens with the Lord and with friends. In fact, intercession, what we do in this room throughout the week, is a, which is a fancy word for focused prayer, intercession is all about love. Intercession is about carrying the burdens that are on God's heart for a certain amount of time with him. The people who are the most full of the love of God are the people who carry large amounts of people in their hearts and their burdens with them. Really important pastoral wisdom on this point that I want to share with y'all. We are only to carry the, and bear the burdens that the Lord has appointed for us. This is what the all in this verse means. All means all the burdens that have been appointed for you from God. If we try and carry the burdens that aren't meant for us by God, we will get crushed and become broken and worn out and burned out. We must stay in fellowship and constant dialogue with the Lord to know what to say yes to, what burdens to pick up with him, and what to say no to. Your yes is very powerful, but your no is just as powerful and important. Years ago, the Lord spoke to Rick Joyner, an amazing man of God, that if he kept up at the pace that he was going, picking up everyone's burdens left and right, answering every knock on his door, all of them were good things, by the way, that he would eventually be crushed and physically die. But here's the thing. The Lord told him that he wouldn't consider this death to be a holy martyrdom because he did all these great things for God. The Lord would, in fact, consider this death to be suicide because Rick was carrying burdens that the Lord hadn't appointed for him. He was saying yes to things that God didn't want for him. Yeah, love is able to bear all the burdens. This verse says love bears all, but it's all the burdens that have been appointed to them by the Lord. Ask for wisdom. Lord, release wisdom to myself, everyone in this room, for what to say yes to and what to say no to so we don't find ourselves burned out and trying to please everyone and answer every knock on our door and our cell phone. Love believes all things. Love believes everything God has said. <laughs> That's what this verse means. It doesn't mean you're gullible and you believe everything that everyone tells you. Love believes everything God has said. Love has faith that every promise of God has indeed found its yes and amen in Christ. Love believes the report of the Lord over and above the report of man or the enemy. Love is full of faith. Love elevates the ability of God to change any situation or any circumstance in favor of the saints. Love truly believes that with God, all things are possible. Worship team, you can come up. We're almost done, guys. Love hopes all things. Hope is the confident expectation that good things are coming your way. Hope is the confident expectation that good things are coming the way of the people of God. Faith is current, right now. Hope is for the future. Love has hope for a brighter day coming. There is a glorious, bright day coming when Jesus comes back. And that's what all biblical hope is rooted in the return of Jesus.
That's our ultimate solution is when Jesus comes back. Love that hopes all things sings the song, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Love is, love is rooted in the reality that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the God who was and is and is to come. So we can have hope for our future because just as much as God's in right now, he's gonna be in tomorrow. I said it earlier, but all biblical hope is rooted in the day of the Lord. The return of Christ is the ultimate long-in hope for every sincere believer. Every true lover of God has their ultimate hope that when Jesus comes back, all the wrong things will be made right. And love has the confidence. This verse says that love hopes all things. What does that mean? It means that love has a hope in all that the Bible has said concerning the return of Jesus. That's really what it means. Love believes in the 150 chapters whose primary message is the return of the Lord. Love is confident that a brighter day is coming because it truly knows deep down that the bright and glorious one is coming back. Love endures all things. I love this. Love endures all things. Simply, love doesn't give up on anything God has said or anybody that God loves. Love doesn't quit on anybody. Love endures through the end. Love endures through tribulation, mistreatment, and delay. Love clings on to Jesus in the midst of trial. It realizes that every storm eventually runs out of rain. Love doesn't get calloused or hardened by difficulties. Instead, love views every hardship as an opportunity to give a sacrifice of praise in and something that is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Jesus said this concerning the great tribulation before his return. Matthew 24, he said, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. In the end, because sin is rampant everywhere, the love of many will grow cold, they'll be offended. But the love of those who stay connected to the vine of love himself every single day, and they buy the oil of intimacy every single day with Jesus, their love will actually grow, it'll go in the opposite direction. They'll become hotter and they'll make it. I want us to make it. I want us to endure. I want us to be saved in the end. And the only way to do that is to cultivate growth in love. Let's all stand to our feet as we look at this last three-word phrase on love. Love never fails. This is so comforting, guys. Love always wins. The biblical definition of love always wins. God's standard of love wins. If we don't quit, we win. If we don't quit growing in and choosing love, we win. Even when it looks like we fail outwardly, and believe me, we're gonna fail at many things many times because we're not perfected yet. But even when it might have looked like we failed in a situation, if our motivation was to display and impart the pure love of Jesus and give him all the glory, we won. We really did. An example of love never failing. Let's say one of us steps out in faith and prays for supernatural healing for someone's torn ACL. And after you pray, nothing happened. Nothing physical, the pain didn't go down, they still had to wear the brace. But in that act of prayer, your pure, pure motivation was to love them and to love God with the gift that he gave you. Did you fail or did you succeed? 
you won. In God's eyes, that was a roaring success because you stepped out in obedience and faith and that person was exposed to the very love of God through your act of obedience when you prayed for healing for him. When we love, we never lose. That should give us confidence. This, this society just, there's such an amazing amount of expectation on success. Especially in this culture where we live in, in this community, success is so paramount. But when we just love God and love people, we win. We never lose. Let's respond now together as a church family. We're gonna respond through something I heard years ago from a friend as an exercise to grow in love. This is a really practical exercise. We're gonna use the power of the word of God to declare life over ourselves. We're gonna use this most powerful weapon in our bodies, our tongues, to speak to our souls, to come into alignment with the biblical definition of love. Proverbs says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. So we're gonna take this seriously and speak love, life, and truth over ourselves from God's word. The exercise is this. From 1 Corinthians 13, four through eight, we're going to replace I for the word love. Everywhere love appears or love is inferred, we're going to identify ourselves with love. Because like we talked about earlier, this is the goal of the Christian life, to become love. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The whole Bible hangs on two pegs. Love God, love others. The goal of the Christian life is to become love, to become the embodiment and the representation of love on the earth by allowing the life of Jesus to be lived out through us. Jesus is coming back for an equally yoked bride who looks and acts and has the same identity as him. Jesus is love incarnate, and he's invited us into this glorious, mysterious, seemingly impossible task of becoming love with him. So let's cooperate with the Spirit in this process. Let's do it now. I'll give you an example. I'll go through a little bit of the verse, and then we'll do it together. I suffer long. I am patient, and I am kind. I do not envy. I do not parade myself. I am not puffed up. We get it? Okay, let's do it together. I suffer long. I am patient and I am kind. I do not envy. I do not parade myself. I am not puffed up. I do not behave rudely. I do not seek my own. I am not provoked. I think no evil. I do not rejoice in iniquity, but I rejoice in the truth. I bear all things. I believe all things. I hope all things. I endure all things. I never fail. <laughs> My practical action step for us is to regularly declare these truths from 1 Corinthians 13 over ourselves, just like we did. You always have a roadmap to love. It's in your Bible, in your Bible app, 1 Corinthians 13. As you do it, you will probably be convicted by the Holy Spirit in some areas. That's good. That's a sign that you're a son or a daughter if you feel conviction. When you feel that conviction, just pause and ask God for help in that area. Like maybe it's being provoked easily. Say, God, give me a long fuse, like Larry. Give me a long fuse. Ask him to help you in that area of love that you feel like you're coming up short in. 
A few years ago, one of our very own elders, Todd Adams, was actually led of the Lord to only read 1 Corinthians 13 every single day for an entire year. He wasn't allowed to read any other part of the Bible that whole year in his quiet time. That's wild. In his quiet time, every day, the Lord hedged him into this chapter to become love. Now, I'm not calling us to do exactly this, but if you feel led by all means, go for it or go for something similar, maybe three months. I sense this was an in-house watermark, an example that God may indeed call us to some, some of us to. But regardless, let us all regularly visit this passage for ourselves and pray these truths into ourselves and the people that we love. Let's be patient and kind to one another as we're all on the journey of growing in love and becoming love. I'm gonna invite up the prayer teams now. Prayer teams, you come to the front. They'll be at the front here if you need prayer for anything as the worship team sings us out. Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon. To download the notes and slides for this message, visit our website, riverinthehills.com. If you would like to partner with us in moving God's heart and changing the world, Please subscribe to our podcast, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend.